Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Greetings, my fellow suffering beings. Today's episode hits very close to the bone for me. In my adult life, one of the most consistent drags on my personal mental health has been interpersonal conflict at work. My guest today is a true ninja on this topic. Amy Gallo is a workplace expert who writes and speaks about interpersonal dynamics, difficult conversations, feedback, gender, and effective communication. She is the author of a new book called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. She's also written a book called The Harvard Business Review or HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And she hosts the Women at Work podcast. Oh, and one more thing. She was recently selected for the latest Thinkers 50 list. Anyway, you get the idea. She's a hitter. So in this conversation, we talk about why quality interactions at work are so important for your professional success and personal mental health, why Amy believes one size does not fit all when it comes to dealing with difficult people in the workplace, why avoidance is not usually an option, what the research tells us about work friendships, why we have a tendency to dehumanize people who have more power than us, why passive aggressive people can be the most difficult to deal with, and the provocative question of whether we might be part of the problem when work conflict crops up. Oh, and this is a big thing. She also taxonomizes eight different flavors of difficult coworkers, including the pessimist, the victim, the know-it-all, and the insecure boss. And she provides tactics for managing each of these archetypes. Just to say, this is the third installment in our Work Life series. If you missed it, go check out the other episodes where we cover things like imposter syndrome, whether mindfulness really works at work, and whether you should actually bring your whole self to the office. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but... The data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. 
Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Amy Gallo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I just have to ask at the start here, how and why did you get so interested in conflict at work? Were you beefing a lot with your colleagues? What happened? (laughs) I wonder if my former colleagues are listening to this saying, yep, that's exactly (laughs) right. No, I mean, I've been someone who's always gotten along well with people I work with. But I will say I worked as a management consultant earlier in my career, and I didn't love being a management consultant. But one of the things I noticed in that work was that you could have the smartest minds in the room. You could have top-notch strategy, plans for executing that strategy, just really talented people. And whether or not it succeeded or failed was dependent on the quality of the interactions of the people in the room. And so I really saw just how critical getting along and having strong relationships with people were. Now, that doesn't mean that they were all best buds and that everything was smooth sailing. Conflict was part of it, but healthy, constructive conflict was part of it. So that was really, for me, the origin of my interest in this topic. And then I wrote a book a few years ago about dealing with conflict at work. And inevitably, people would say at the end of a talk or a virtual training this is great. These are great tools for handling conflict. But I have this one coworker, and I just kept hearing these stories of people who were just otherwise very happy in their jobs or mostly got along with the people they worked with. But there was one person who was really pushing their buttons, and that was taking up so much of their psyche. So that then led to this book specifically. In this new book, you lay out these different archetypes for challenging personalities in the workplace. And we'll get to that in great detail, but I kind of want to stay on the higher level just for a second. One of the things you say in this new book is that you believe much of the advice about conflict at work that's out there is based on some faulty assumptions. What are those assumptions? Well, I think one is that the advice for dealing with someone who's exhibiting, let's say, passive aggressive behavior would be the same as the advice for dealing with someone who's a political operator or an insecure manager, right? There's this sort of generic approach that you can take to anyone we would call, quote unquote, difficult. 
And, you know, you can lump them all into one big category of jerk or button pusher and just use those tactics. Now, to be fair, there is a chapter in the book where I shared principles that apply to anyone. But I knew that there was research and specific tactics that could be used for specific types of people or specific patterns of behavior. And that's really one of the things that I wanted to get at with the book was to help people with their unique situations that they were facing and get away from the generic advice. I mean, you know, working as an editor at HBR, we're dealing with a lot of generic advice all the time. I mean, and even the world you work in of mindfulness and meditation, there's a lot of generic advice, much of which is useful, but there's a limit to that. And that was one of the assumptions I really wanted to challenge was that you know, we need to go a little bit deeper. We need to be more specific. We need to be a little more tailored if we're going to help people deal with the specific problems that they have. You know, another of the assumptions is that the workplace works the same way for everyone. So a tactic that might work for you, the assumption is that it would work the same for me. And I think we know very well that that's not the case and that identity plays a huge role, both in terms of how we identify or consider difficult behavior, what even we label as difficult, but also in terms of what's effective, right? So gender bias, racial bias, all sorts of prejudices and biases play a role in whether I'm allowed to call out a colleague directly and say, please stop being passive aggressive, and whether that's effective or not. And so that was the other thing I really wanted to pay attention to and challenge with this book is the idea that we can give advice that will work the same way for everyone, regardless of their identity factors. And again, talk about that bias. Talk about how some of us have to use more indirect approaches. Some of us have to go through the mental gymnastics of thinking, here's how I would address this, but then I also have to consider how I will be perceived, what the reputational damage might be, whether me saying, please stop doing that will actually be effective or whether it will cause more grief in the relationship. So it it may be easier for me in many circumstances to address a conflict than it would be for you, given our chromosomal differences. Do you think there are cases, though, where it would be harder for a white man to address a conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that there's a narrower range of behavior for certain identity groups. So women, certainly, people of color, certainly, in terms of what we allow. But we know that all those biases and prejudices are not helpful for anyone. So we might, for example, as a white man, we might expect you to be more direct and more assertive. And that might not be your natural style. That might not be something you feel comfortable doing. You might want to use more indirect approaches and people might criticize you for doing that, right? Saying you're being too weak about this. You should just address it directly. So all of those norms and expectations and stereotypes work always in terms of limiting what we can do. You know, I don't want to imply that you just have carte blanche to address behavior however you want. It's a matter of understanding what the cultural expectation is of us as based on our identity, and then knowing how do we navigate that while also advocating for ourselves. And at the same time, which makes it really complicated, trying to increase the connection that we feel with the other person. Because ultimately, 
I think what we want is to have stronger relationships with the people that we work with. Well, that brings me to a question I suspect some people might have, which is, why why would I engage in conflict at all at work? If somebody's a jerk or difficult, like, what's the point? Maybe, maybe I should just avoid them. Well, yeah, that might be a solution. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes avoiding is absolutely the right thing. However, I think in most work circumstances, that's not really possible. Work is so interdependent these days. The amount of collaboration we do with others it is rare to have a job that does not rely on other people. And so, yeah, you know, maybe you work in HR and there's someone across the building in finance who you have to interact with once a year and you think they're a jerk and great, you just ignore them, right? You get what you need that one time a year or three times a year and you're done. But more often than not, we have to be in collaboration with people. So I don't think avoiding is a realistic tactic. I think we also have to consider that it's not just about our relationship. So let's just for hypothetical assume you and I don't get along and we decide to ignore each other, right? The people we manage, the people on our team, maybe our bosses, take note of that. They're going to pick up on that. That might influence how they interact, right? Let's say we both lead teams, right? And they see that we don't get along and we avoid each other. They might think, well, I don't have to cooperate with that team. And that could then trickle down, affect the quality of the work, affect the quality of the collaboration. It's not just about us. There's the ripple effects. I call it the emotional shrapnel of us not getting along that then impacts everyone around us. I will also say, most people I know who say, oh, I have someone at work who I don't get along with, I just ignore them. They say they ignore them, but then they're actually doing a lot, right? So they may not actually engage or make snarky comments or talk badly about them, but it's having a toll on their well-being because they're thinking about it. They're having to take great effort to avoid them and not involve them. They might be complaining about it to their spouse at home or their friends or roommates, like we often say, well, I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to ignore it when we're actually doing quite a lot of things, many of which are not healthy for us. That makes a lot of sense. You make the point that there's real upside here. If you have positive relationships at work, it can be the opposite of emotional shrapnel. It could be emotional glitter bomb. <laughs> I love that emotional glitter bomb. Yeah. And there's decades of research that show this. I mean, I started out in my 20s thinking, I don't need friends at work. I just need to show up, do my job, be done with it, right? And I just didn't think work was a place to make friends. But there is so much research that shows the more positive, friendly, congenial our relationships at work are, the better we perform. The more engaged we are, the more productive we are. One of my favorite studies on this is they gave people backpacks with weight in them and said, you're going to have to climb this mountain with this backpack. Guess how much that backpack weighs. If they were standing alone, they were more likely to guess it was much heavier than if they were standing with a friend, right? So we tend to think the load is lighter when we work with people. There was a team at Rutgers that found that people who consider themselves to have a best friend at work actually have higher performance ratings than people who don't. So that we also see in the workplace, there is a material effect on actually having friends at work. And we see quite the opposite when you look at all the studies around incivility, 
at work, people treating one another rudely, making those snarky comments, demeaning one another. There's real implications, not just that it hurts, which of course it hurts emotionally, but there's real implications for the work. We're more distracted. We're more likely to make mistakes. People who observe the incivility are also more likely to be distracted and make mistakes. And so it's not just about the sort of emotional upside. There's also real material effect on the quality of the work, the way we do it, and the impact of the people who receive the work, whether those are patients, customers, whoever's on the receiving end of our jobs. Just to quickly say, we did a whole episode on civility at work, and I'll drop a link to that in the show notes here. But you have a section called Your Brain on Conflict. Can you give me the uh, TLDR on that? Sure. Conflict, no matter how small, even if it's a disagreement on the project plan or the right way to email someone or whether we show up late or early to a meeting, all of that starts to feel like a threat, right? And I know you've talked a lot about this in your app and in the podcast of when we sense a threat, the amygdala, the threat sensing part of our brain gets activated and it takes over for the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking part of our brain. And so any sense of threat or rupture we experience with a colleague, again, can be very minor. We start to have that stress response, cortisol rushing through our body. My classic symptom is sweaty palms, but yours might be elevated heart rate or turning red in the face, whatever it is. And we quickly jump to conclusions, right? We do something social psychologists called premature cognitive commitment. So let's just say you roll your eyes at me in a meeting, right? Immediately, I start to tell myself a story of Dan's a jerk or, oh, here Dan goes again. He's always so passive aggressive, right? And I just tell myself that story and I commit to it. So rather than thinking Dan's having a hard day, oh gosh, this conversation is a trigger for Dan because his department is under threat from these impending layoffs. I don't start seeking other explanations that might be a softer explanation. I get committed to the Dan is a jerk narrative and I have trouble letting it go. So then that story starts, and then <laughs> we get into the confirmation bias of anything you do, right? Like, you turn and talk to the person next to you, oh, Dan's talking about me, right? He's talking about why he rolled his eyes, even though I have no idea why you might be turning and talking to the person next to you. And so we sort of get into the snowball effect of my story's true. Usually the story is I'm the hero, they're the villain, or some people's story is I'm the villain, I'm only hurting other people, whatever it is, but that just becomes very true to us. And it can be really hard to undo that story once our brain has committed to it. So how do you undo it? Great question. So the first thing I would say mindfulness is hugely helpful, right? Taking a pause and really focusing on how am I responding? What's going on in my body? So as I said, sweaty palms are for me, the first instinct that like, oh, I actually feel threatened. I might be going into amygdala hijack, noticing those reactions and saying, okay, well, I know when I get into amygdala hijack, I start telling myself these stories and asking yourself, what assumptions am I making? What else could be true? What if I'm wrong, right? I don't know if Dan is talking about me, but what if I'm wrong? How would I behave differently? And 
also watching out for all the things like, am I fed? Am I hydrated? Am I tired? I remember I was doing a sort of high profile live video project with a team. We had spent months planning for this and it was exhausting. The last few days of it, I wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating well. We finally do this live video in front of thousands of people and it went well by most measures. And I got back to my desk and I got an email from someone high up in the organization that said, that was okay. Here are 10 things you can do differently. And in that moment, I was not resourced enough to have a rational response to those 10 pieces of feedback. (laughs) And I'll be honest, some really choice words came out of my mouth. Luckily, I was alone at my desk. No one else heard them. But she also had CC'd people. Like It did not feel good. And I will tell you, amygdala hijack kicked right in. I was ready to be done with her. I was never going to talk to her again. And this video project was going to be canceled. Like I had really serious, committed thoughts to what I was going to do. And instead, I went and took a walk around the building, got a glass of water. I used to do this thing. I don't don't know what you would call this in mindfulness, but I would sit in my chair and spin. Like something about spinning in my like office chair calmed me down. So I was like spinning and sitting there thinking like, okay, like what, what if she's right? What if some of the points are correct? And then sort of going back and addressing that with a calmer brain and a little distance, I was able to say, three of those things are totally off base. I'm just going to ignore those. Four of them probably are partially true. And the other three are very true. And next time we do this video project, I'll take those into consideration. That was an example of handling it well. I have lots of examples of what I haven't handled it well, but I think we just have to catch ourselves in that cognitive commitment we're making and saying, what if this is wrong? And perspective taking helps too. All the research shows we're terrible at perspective taking. So like if I tried right now to put myself in your shoes, what's Dan thinking? What's he doing? I would probably be very wrong about it, but what's helpful about it is that it reminds me that my perspective is probably not 100% correct. And so even the exercise of asking what's going on for Dan or what's going on for that woman who sent me that email, even the exercise of doing it helps unhook me from that story I've told myself about why we're having this conflict or why things are hard between us. That makes a ton of sense. And I would say that your boss or whoever sent you that email, (laughs) the timing was not optimal. And so that hijack seems pretty justifiable to me. Before we dive into the archetypes, and you've listed a few of them, including the political operator and the insecure boss, I just want to call out something that you mentioned to my colleague, Gabrielle, who's producing this, that apparently some of the feedback you've gotten on the book is that some people don't like the term difficult. Yeah. Actually, can I ask you, what's your reaction when you see that phrase difficult people? What do you think? I have no problem with it. I think I can understand the pushback because very few people are holistically, thoroughgoingly difficult in every regard. So I understand why you could get persnickety in the face of that term. But I also title books and podcasts all the time, and you really want to have something that's catchy. And I would put more weight on the goal of coming up with a catchy title that helps people navigate conflict at work than I would about making sure that that title is correct and could withstand, you know, a Talmudic level of analysis. 
Yeah. So you and my editor are very closely aligned. (laughs) I actually wanted to put difficult in quotes on the cover because, you know, it's pretty big there, difficult people. And uh, my editor was like, no, people won't even know what that means. And you sort of have to commit that the readers who you want to buy this book are using that phrase, right? They're saying, I'm dealing with someone who's difficult. My hesitation about it and the pushback I've gotten is that people aren't difficult, right? Behaviors are difficult. Actions might be challenging for us, but people themselves, it's unfair to call them difficult. I'm not sure I 100% agree with that feedback. What I do agree with is that I think that that label is often used dismissively. So it's it's used to say like, he's difficult, I don't have to deal with them. Or it's really often informed by bias. So we will use that label to describe someone who doesn't think like us, look like us, act like us, has different values than us, maybe comes from a different culture. And we use that as shorthand to say, I don't like what they're doing, as opposed to really analyzing what is problematic about the way they're treating me or the way we're interacting. I've made peace with it, but I do, even talking to you, put air quotes around it when I say difficult people, because I get the hesitation and I don't want to turn off readers who are like, people aren't difficult. You can't do that. But I also want people to read the book who need the help. And they're probably struggling with someone that they would use that adjective to describe them. Yeah, I mean, I think I would come down where you've come down. That being said, though, I had not considered the bias piece of this. And I have seen in my many years in the workplace, people from non-dominant cultures get dismissed as difficult. And I think, in my opinion, a lot of times I've seen it be maybe partially true, but a lot of it is informed by bias. But I guess this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's 98% really good that we're in an era where we're thinking carefully about language. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are times where it can lead to a way of speaking or writing that is hard to decipher and turns people off. And so I think that's a really tricky balance that we have to manage. Yeah, well, I agree. And I think adding those quotes around difficult would have just been confusing, right? Like, And I think people wouldn't, you know, let's put aside the fact that I want them to buy the book because I wrote a book and everyone wants people to buy their book. But it wouldn't actually get people the help they need because they think they're dealing with a difficult person, not a quote unquote difficult person. And so I think that's where the cautions around language can sometimes impede what we're actually trying to do, even when it's in the service of good. Yes. Another piece of feedback you're getting, which was something that was exactly where I went as I was looking over your materials, is that I immediately found myself, as I looked over this taxonomy of difficult people, these archetypes within the office, I immediately started thinking, well, which one am I? I'm probably several <laughs> of these. And apparently, I'm not alone, that that you're hearing that quite a bit. Yeah. And actually, having watched your TED Talk, I'm not surprised that that's where you went <laughs> with the book, given that you're someone who reflects on your own behavior and how it impacts other people. That's a new development, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. But better late than never, right? So when I handed in the manuscript, it was about 30% too long. And anyone who works in books knows it's way too much. And each of the archetypes had a section in that original manuscript that if this is you, so if you identify as the know-it-all, if you identify as the political operator, here's some tips for what you should do. 
And when we were thinking about how to cut back the manuscript, again, my very smart editor said, I think we have to lose those sections. And I was hesitant, but he made the point. He said, I don't think people will have the self-awareness, right? First of all, the person who identifies as difficult or might be seen as difficult isn't picking up this book. And I agreed with that logic. And I thought, yeah, it's true. It takes a lot of self-awareness to admit you're doing one of these things or exhibiting these patterns of behavior. But then from like day one of the book coming out on social media, I was getting emails. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the insecure manager. Oh my gosh, I'm the biased colleague. What do I do? And I immediately thought, oh man, we made a mistake. We should have kept those chapters in there. So you, you're you not alone. You know, I do try throughout the book to talk about times I've exhibited each of these behaviors because I don't think any of us are above doing these things. But I think maybe there's another book I need to write about what to do if you do identify. But behavior change is hard. And identifying as the insecure manager and then actually taking action to remedy that, that's a lot of work. And for some people, that's a, a lifetime of work to try to undo some of these patterns that we've learned and in many cases have made us successful. And so I have regrets <laughs> about the cuts we made in the book, but I also am so encouraged that people are seeing themselves and and actually thinking about how are they impacting the people they work with. My best friend from childhood texted me when she got her copy and and said, I'm gifting this to everyone on my team because I have a feeling I fit into all of these categories. And I was like, that's very nice of you. Are you going to tell them that that's why you're giving to them? She's like, yeah, I'll do that. And again, I think we just underestimated people's ability to admit that they fall into these categories and they might very well be very annoying, very difficult to the people around them. Coming up, Amy Gallo talks about what the research says about dealing with an insecure coworker and advice that involves imagining that you are a cute and fluffy squirrel. That's right, this HBR writer recommends that for real. We also talk about dealing with the pessimist and the victim to other archetypes and why we have the tendency to dehumanize people in power at work. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping 
on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's let's talk about the categories, the archetypes. The first is something you've mentioned a few times, the insecure boss or manager. Describe that behavior. Yeah. So that is someone who does not feel like they are cut out for their job. Maybe consciously they know that or subconsciously they know that, and they take that insecurity out on the people around them. So they may struggle to make decisions. They may hoard information. They may try to stop you from interacting with other departments or senior leaders as a way to sort of keep the power control in their realm. They often micromanage. They may even take credit for things that you do. One of the interesting things in in researching this archetype is that the more senior you get, the concerns about whether you're competent or not tend to increase, right? Being found out as an imposter Folks who are very senior in organizations tend to have that more. And it makes sense. The expectations for them are higher. They're expected to do more leaderly things. And so the gap between what's expected of them and what they think they're capable of might get wider at that point. But it's no fun to actually work for this person. And one of the real hard parts is their questioning of you can be contagious. So then you start to feel insecure as a result. Was this something, one of the ones you identified with? No, no. I've had bosses like this. So what are the moves? Yeah. This is one of the ones where I'm, I'm always hesitant to give the advice because what the research shows is something no one wants to do, which is to flatter the boss. Right. And uh, I do not like that to come out of my mouth. Like just give your boss some genuine compliments. But unfortunately, that's what the research shows actually works, is that they're in this process of ego defensiveness, right? They're just protecting their sense of self-worth. And the more you can calm that defensiveness, the more likely they're going to stop some of those micromanaging, distrusting, hoarding information behaviors. And of course, you can't compliment them on something they're not actually good at. So like if, you know, if they're horribly indecisive, you're not going to be like, you have great decision-making skills, right? You actually have to find something. And most people have something they're good at. Most managers have at least one thing they're good at. And if you can really show that you value them 
and then align yourself with them. So figure out what is it they actually want to achieve. Maybe even ask them, like, what are your top three goals? What are you really focused on? And assuming they can articulate that, assuming they're being honest with you, to then help them achieve that, you get sort of brought in to their circle of positivity as opposed to the circle of threat that they see. They see lots of people as threats. So you want to signal that you're not a threat to them. Lindy Greer, who's a professor at University of Michigan, who I interviewed for the book because she studies a lot of this, has this tactic that she hasn't researched it, but it's something she personally got from her coach, which is that she had an insecure manager who felt very threatened by her. And the coach (laughs) encouraged Lindy to imagine she was a cute, fluffy squirrel whenever she interacted with this boss. And she thought this was the most ridiculous thing. She's like, but whatever, I'll try it. And she said it was amazing. Like, she didn't actually say anything or do anything. It was just in her mind, imagining herself as non-threatening, right? She didn't have to not speak. She didn't have to, like, become a doormat. She just had to become a cute, fluffy squirrel whenever she met with this manager. And it seemed to sort of take the tension out of their interactions. The manager was disarmed by the fact that she had a lot of walnuts in her cheeks. <laughs> That's exactly right. She kept climbing up a tree. It was like, what? what? Yeah. I, I, Why is I, your tail twitching like that? <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, we often assume that we're hiding our disdain for other people or our dislike. I can tell pretty quickly when someone does not like me. I'm sure you can too. And if I'm at all insecure about that, Uh, that's just going to feed that insecurity. And so it's a silly mental trick, but to imagine yourself as something that's not threatening, to get in that mindset is going to start sending a little bit more warmth toward that person. They're going to pick up on that. And ideally, it sort of breaks the cycle of threat, retaliation, threat, retaliation. A comment and then a question. Quick comment, which is just that I didn't mean to dismiss the possibility that I'm an insecure boss or manager. It just, I didn't immediately see myself in it, but if you talk to people who work for or with me, maybe they would see it. So just to be open-minded on that score. The question is that I can imagine some people might hear this and say, wait a minute, this boss is micromanaging me, thwarting my potential for growth, and I should flatter them or pretend I'm a squirrel? Like that, that, (laughs) what I really ought to do is stand up for myself. And I empathize with that. And like I said, I don't love giving the advice to like flatter and to imagine yourself as a cute, fluffy squirrel. I just know at least, you know, in Lindy's experience, the cute, fluffy squirrel worked and lots of research, the flattery worked. So the question is, yeah, you might want to stand up for yourself. The question is, will that be received or will that make things worse? And I think navigating challenging relationships at work is often about deciding between, and and this is true for the tactics I share in the book, is like it's deciding between how much do you call out the behavior, stand up for yourself, advocate for yourself, versus try to influence the other person to behave differently. And I think that's going to be a personal decision for a lot of people. But one of the things I really encourage people to do is think about, well, what is your ultimate goal? If your ultimate goal is to say your piece and you don't care about whether the relationship gets better or the person gets more defensive or it gets more controlling, then go ahead, say your piece. I get that. Stand by your values. Hold your integrity. I get that. But you just have to be realistic about what that ultimately will accomplish. And with many of the archetypes, including the insecure boss, 
oftentimes that standing up makes things worse. And you just have to be realistic about that. But in no way am I telling people to do anything that would compromise their values or their mental health or their sense of well-being. I mean, ultimately, that is primary. But is having a better relationship with your boss going to contribute more to your well-being or is going to stand up and say, stop doing that? That's ridiculous, right? What's going to contribute more, I think, is the real question. Let's move on to the next archetype. It's the pessimist. Yeah. (laughs) So this one, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, right? This is the person who is a naysayer. We've all worked with someone who just is like, this isn't going to work. Oh, that never worked. Oh, you haven't thought of all these risks, right? Just sort of puts every idea down. Complains about their boss, complains about the clients. They have nothing good to say. And one of the things to keep in mind here is that there's this concept of motivational focus. So some people identify as prevention focus, or maybe don't identify, but we might identify them as prevention focus, which are the classic pessimists, people who are really thinking about risks, concerns. They're very cautious. They tend to think about all the things that could go wrong and try to prevent that. And then there's people who are promotion focused, who tend to be our optimists, who are focused on opportunities, forward action. Uh, They tend to be just sort of wanting to push forward as opposed to protect against what things could go wrong. So if we want to put a more neutral frame on it, pessimists tend to be prevention focused and and often for good reason, right? The pessimists play an important role often in our work and in identifying risks and pointing out what might go wrong and often seeing things that other people don't see. And that can be really beneficial if it's channeled in the right way which is the real key. Pessimism, like many, many of the behaviors we'll talk about, is contagious. So we also have to watch that the pessimism doesn't sort of taint the rest of the team or the conversation and that everyone sort of gets pulled down. There's some interesting research that shows that pessimisms tend to have more power simply because they're contrarian. So we afford their viewpoint because it's not aligned with the rest of the group. We afford their viewpoint more value than it actually would warrant. So one out of 10 people disagree. We don't give them 10% of the credit. We actually give them much greater percentage because it's contrarian. And so we have to watch out for that pessimist really spoiling the water, so to speak. So when the pessimist is spoiling the water, what are the moves? Yeah, so one thing to caution against is the polarization. So you don't want to get into a tug of war of like, Everything's horrible. No, everything's great. Everything's horrible. And you have to remember that pessimists think optimists are idiots. So the more you say, no, no, everything's fine. It'll, no, that would never happen. That They just think you're naive. They're going to dismiss you right out. And so in some ways, you have to give credence to their caution, not endorse it, not say, oh, my gosh, you're totally right. That's going to happen. But say things like, well, I see how could, you could think that. Or, yeah, you know, part of me shares that concern. Or yeah, you're raising an important risk, and then move on to sort of a more productive frame of discussion, which is how can we mitigate that, right? Or what would have to be true for this to actually succeed? I get your concern, but what could we change to actually make this a success? And I think, you know, granting them their premise so that you don't shove them into the pessimist corner and they get defensive like a cornered animal, you know, By doing that, you can sort of take 
a little bit of the heat out of it and then sort of align yourself of like, this is a problem we have to solve together. How can you contribute in a productive way to this conversation? I think that's really one of the the most important things you can do with a pessimist. So let's do the third archetype now, the victim. Yes. So the victim is a flavor of the pessimist, right? The pessimist thinks everything's going to go wrong. The victim is convinced everything's going to go wrong to them. And so, you know, one of the things I, I really caution about the victim is that there are people who are truly victims, right? Who are being persecuted at work or bullied or ostracized. And so be careful to quickly label someone, and this holds true for all the archetypes, but be careful to label someone a victim in in the chance that they actually are being victimized. But if it's someone who just sort of feels like everyone's out to get them, one of the things you want to do is encourage them to have some agency because they often feel helpless, right? There's nothing that can be done. And so even doing something hypothetical of saying, well, if you were in charge, what would you do? If no one else's opinion mattered here, what would you say? And just trying to sort of get them to imagine their way out of that victim mentality. This is one where I would say most people have marginal success, not great success. This is also an archetype where being a little more direct can help, especially if you have some sort of responsibility for them at at work. And, And you can be more direct and say, I see this as your responsibility. Let's talk about why you don't see it that way, right? And just getting them to see The more they play the victim, the less they're going to get what they want. And really trying to focus on what is it they want from work, get them to articulate what their goals are. And then you might even say, you know, when you don't take responsibility for your actions or you assume that no one's going to go along with you, it doesn't help you achieve those goals. It just sort of blocks you into a corner. So let's talk about what you can do differently. One of the interesting bits of human psychology here that was explained to me recently that was just so illuminating when I heard this, and I think it's relevant to this discussion around feeling like a victim, which is a feeling I've had at work for sure, it's that when you're on the less powerful part of a power dynamic, there is a pronounced tendency to dehumanize the person with more power. In other words, to not think of them as fully human and not ascribe to them many of the characteristics that you have. You can just kind of demonize them and it seems easy because they have so much power over you. And as soon as I heard that, I just interpolated back to all the times in my life where I've done exactly that vis-a-vis my bosses. And I'm wondering if that lands for you? And if so, what can be done about it? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely lands for me. And I think our discussion about labels plays into this. It's so easy, especially when someone has power and you feel subjected to their decisions or their whims to just label them as something, as Machiavellian or as out to get you, whatever the label is that you want to put on them and decide you know, they have no humanness, right? They, they have no concerns or worries. And I think especially when someone has control over how much you make, where you work, what you work on, when you take vacation, right? You start to see them as a tool to get what you want or not get what you want, as opposed to as a human who has concerns. And I do think we need to remind ourselves that we are all vulnerable humans. And we all have insecurities and concerns and faults 
and superpowers. I opened the book with the story of a boss I found really challenging, and I've certainly dehumanized her. And I remember thinking, she's a jerk at work. She must be a jerk everywhere, right? And I was just convinced. She was just an awful, awful person. But when I think back on it, she was under a lot of pressure. She probably was in over her head. I do know she had stuff going on in her personal life that was really challenging. Even as I say that, I can feel my chest like sort of relax a little bit. And I think that's one of the exercises that can be important to do is remind yourself. I mean, I've heard mindfulness teachers like just remind yourself everyone was a baby. Everyone was vulnerable at some point and the care of others. And yes, they may be doing awful things or things that you find awful, but that doesn't mean they're not human. So I love that point, and I think it's an, an important one. Coming up, Amy talks about why dealing with a passive-aggressive colleague is so infernally difficult, the archetype Amy and I both identify with the most, and why it's important not to dismiss mansplaining. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. The next archetype is the passive-aggressive peer. Yes. This was the origin of the book. <laughs> whenever I do talks, or I shouldn't say it was the origin of the book, it was the first archetype I landed on. And whenever I do talks, the first question is, what do I do when someone's passive-aggressive? Truthfully, and you shouldn't say this about your own book, but I wish I had better advice in this chapter. <laughs> passive-aggressive can feel like shadow boxing. Like you just can't land anything. You're trying to 
talk to them or give them feedback or ask them a question and they're just like, nope, nope, I'm okay, nope, like evade, evade, evade. And it's so, so frustrating. And if someone is, I hesitate to use the word pathologically because I don't want to get like psychological about it, but if someone is consistently passive aggressive, it is really hard to make any of these tactics work. That said, there are a few things I will point out. Well, one, I think keep in mind that passive aggressive behavior, there's usually a rational explanation for it, even if you don't agree with the rationale. You know, it's fear of conflict, fear of failure, seeking perfection, fear of rejection. Right? Those are all rational things, even if they're not founded in your relationship with this person. You know, so keep that in mind. And then one of the things is to do what Heidi Grant, social psychologist I interviewed for the book, talks about is like sort of hypothesis testing is try to really focus on what is it that they're trying to convey that they feel afraid to convey. And you might have a hunch about what that is. And then can you test that? So you might say, you know, what I hear you saying, I think is this. Am I getting that right? And they might just say, nope. No, 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 you're totally wrong, right? They might dive right into that passive aggressive, but you've shown them that you're not just going to listen to the words coming out of the mouth, but you're going to try to understand a little deeper. And that can encourage them to be a little bit more direct. You might also think about, have you done anything that has encouraged them to be passive aggressive? Have you shown them you don't like conflict? Have you shown them you don't like to be disagreed with? Have you shown them that it's unsafe to say exactly what they think and feel? And can you change some of that, right? Can you sort of roll out the red carpet of, I want to hear differences of opinion. I know I don't always react great to it, but I really want to hear what's on your mind. And make the stakes clear. Like, if I don't hear your opinion, if I don't have your perspective, if I don't know how you really feel, we're not going to be able to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is you're trying to achieve together. One other thing I'll add, and this is true for a lot of these behaviors, sometimes some positive peer pressure can help. So if you can establish some norms on a team, so classic passive-aggressive behavior is to say one thing in a meeting and then never follow up or, or do the opposite afterwards or say, yeah, I'll do that and just never follow through, is create norms on the team of when we say we're going to do something and we're not able to do it, we'll report back to the team within 24 hours. Or we hold each other accountable when we don't follow through on our commitments. And so then it's not just you and this other person fighting over whether they did what they said they would do, but it's an entire team holding one another accountable. The passive-aggressive one is the one I do struggle the most with because I think it's the hardest to deal with. And I'm curious if in your experience Working with people like this, have you had anything that's worked well for you? Well, what I found particularly useful was the notion, and this is just me speaking personally here, the notion that if you're dealing with somebody passive aggressive, it may be because you've made them feel unsafe. I have some expertise in making people feel unsafe. And so I try to really be on guard for that. I don't know if my techniques work for remedying the situation, but it is often just to almost beg them to give me feedback and to push and push and push and to demonstrate once they've taken the leap of faith to give me feedback that I'm okay with it. I don't always succeed at any of this, but that is my goal. Yeah. Well, and not only saying that you want to hear from them, but then when they do, reacting the way, yes. right? Yes. Like like I said, rolling out the red carpet. I had, a, I think, one of the more embarrassing points in my career 
where a colleague, this was a peer when I was working in management consulting, turned to me in, in the middle of a meeting with several other people. And he said, do you realize that there's a silent you asshole at the end of every sentence, he said. And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, your tone is so arrogant. You don't say it, but it sounds like everything you say ends with a silent you asshole. And I, I mean, I, first of all, he, he and I had a very strong relationship. So he clearly knew he could take the risk in doing this. I sort of wish he hadn't done it in front of other people. But for me, it was such a wake-up call to the way that my tone of voice was threatening or cutting off conversation or all the ways in which I probably was encouraging people to be passive-aggressive toward me because I was making it completely unsafe for them to disagree with me. How do you know that guy wasn't uh, thin-skinned? Well, because when he said it, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, you know when you get feedback and sometimes you're like, no, that's not right. Like, when he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, like, that makes sense. And everyone in the room, no one was like, it, it was uncomfortable, let's be clear. No one, no one was having fun in that conversation. But it was clear he was not alone in thinking that. And so I had to really pay attention. And even if he was thin-skinned, even if I made one person feel that way, thin-skinned or not, that was not the impact I wanted to be having. And I now do this sort of compulsive thing where I will end a sentence, especially with a group and, and people who I want to hear input from, of does that make sense? Like, how do you see it? And just so that I'm not ending with that silent you asshole, but I'm ending with an engaging question so that I can actually hear from them what they think. That all makes sense. I fear that either in your case or other people's cases, especially women or people who are from communities that are not often given as much power, that men might not like hearing feedback from certain groups of people. And I'd be hesitant to advise people to therefore do a whole song and dance and pretend you're a squirrel and, you know, make everything palatable for sensitive baby boy and I know that's not what you're saying, but I'm just trying to, because I feel like I might have been sensitive boy in the past. And so I'm, I'm just trying to put that on the table. Yeah, no, and I, it's a very fair point. And especially if I think about a lot of the bias I've personally experienced, owning my expertise, I think is often threatening to other people as a woman, right? And claiming I know something, declaring it with certainty I think can rub some people the wrong way. Maybe these sensitive boys, whoever we want to characterize them as. but Emo guys. <laughs> emo guys, <laughs> right, right. I think it really mattered who that, that feedback came from. He and I had a relationship. I did not see him as someone who is thin-skinned, sensitive. Certainly, he had been an advocate for mine in the organization we worked for. I didn't feel like that was sort of unfounded threat. And like I said, it completely rang true at the moment. Now, that said, you're exactly right that people who traditionally aren't seen as powerful or experts or even as, as human sometimes, I don't want to give the impression that we then have to bend over backwards to make those people comfortable, right? The goal, and I, I hope this is clear in the book, the goal isn't to like 
smooth the way so that everyone sees you as easy to get along with and make everything copacetic. No, the goal is to be able to live your values, hold your integrity, do your job, and also get what you need from your relationships at work. And sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable, not just for you, but for others. Sometimes that's going to require some tension that's not going to be easy to dissipate. And certainly imagining yourself to be a squirrel or whatever you need to imagine yourself as, you know, that's not the only solution. Like you have to keep an eye on, are you continuing to advocate for yourself? Are you continuing to advocate for your career, push yourself forward, get what you need? Understood. Next archetype is the know-it-all. Mm-hmm. From that story I just shared, you probably know, have realized I identify with this archetype. <laughs> um, <laughs> Me too. Yes. And so I wrote this chapter through like squinted eyes of like, oh God, this is so painful to write. This is the person who talks down to you, who tries to explain things that you already know, who declares something to be absolutely true with no basis in fact or data. And ultimately just is feeding their own ego. I mean, I can say that because that's often what what I'm doing when I participate in this behavior. The thing I like to remember about know-it-alls and why they succeed so much in our culture is that we really reward overconfidence. And often we reward overconfidence, especially in things like leadership that are hard to measure. So instead of actually deciding whether someone's good or bad as a leader based on the results, because that's always very subject to interpretation, we decide they can tell us how good they are. And, and that leads to us valuing confidence over competence over and over again. So I know when I participate in that behavior, I'm brokering in that currency that's very valuable in our organizations. What works, and I'm sharing this advice because it's worked when I've been in this position as a know-it-all, is sometimes asking for facts and data, right? Not show me why you know that to be true, but you know what are you basing that assumption on, right? Can you share any data that would support that? And you know they might bluster back of like, well, I know it because of this, but you've put them on notice that you're not going to just let them declare things. You know, one of the hallmarks of a know-it-all is also interrupting, speaking over people. So doing anything you can to sort of preempt that, you know, could you hold any questions or thoughts till I'm done, right? Or even when someone interrupts, just say, I'm speaking, we'll get to you when I'm done, right? And think of Kamala Harris and her VP debate with, with Pence, right? I'm speaking and just being very clear about that. One of the flavors of the know-it-all is the mansplainer. There's been a lot of talk about mansplaining. And I caution against dismissing that. I think we talk about it as if it's a cute thing that happens. It is really rooted in gender bias, and it is very damaging to women's careers to be talked over, talked down to, have things explained to them that they know. And so we have to take that very seriously. And, and one of the things that's been shown to work is to actually form allyships with other women or even people who don't identify as women to make sure that when the know-it-all starts with their mansplaining, starts with their talking over, that someone else also speaks up on your behalf, right? Amy's not done. I want to hear what she has to say, right? Or that point you just made, I think Amy made it earlier. I'd like to hear again what she had to say. There's some research that shows that when you're the target of bias, you're given less credence when you call it out. And so having someone else call it out on your behalf can be more effective in actually changing that dynamic in the room. Mm -hmm. 
I've seen that deployed skillfully on my own team, actually, by members of the team. Mm. The tormentor. So tormentor, this was someone who you expect to be a mentor, perhaps because they came up ahead of you in the organization, you share some identity factors, but instead they consistently undermine you. This is the person who's like, I walked to school three miles uphill both ways in the snow, and now you must suffer as a result. And most of the people who I interviewed for this chapter either were on the verge of quitting or had quit because of the behavior. And so it's something to take very, very seriously. And there's some research that shows that when you've gone through something difficult, like a divorce, raising young kids and working at the same time, that you don't have as much empathy for people who are in that same position. And the researchers sort of posit that it's like either you sort of forget how difficult it was or you presume because you made it through that they'll be fine and you dismiss the struggles they're going through. And there's also the issue of social identity threat. So if the tormentor is someone who is not from the dominant group in the organization, associating themselves with you can be seen as a downside, right? It's, it's something that might actually threaten their standing. And so instead distance themselves from you, often in harmful ways. This is one of those behaviors or patterns of behavior that are really hard to counter. And often sympathizing with the sacrifices they did make can help, right? So I know you came up in a very different world in this industry, and I can't imagine it was easy for you. And just sort of giving them a sense that you understand what they went through can take a little bit of the sting out of their behavior. But I would also caution that you don't want to do too much of that. The tormentor is someone you really have to ask yourself, can I work with this person? This might be one of those ones where you're setting really clear boundaries. You're limiting the amount of interaction. You're avoiding, you know, to your earlier question at the beginning of the show of like, this might be one where you're crafting your job around them in a way where you really only have to interact with them minimally. I'm going to make an executive decision game time call here. There are two more archetypes, but in the interest of time, I want to ask some more general questions. And so if people want to learn about the biased coworker and the political operator, they can and should buy your book. You just talked about setting boundaries. And I guess I'd be curious to hear, what do you do when all else has failed? Yeah. Oh, and this is the reality many of us are in when we're dealing with these people. You've tried these tactics, you've experimented with different approaches, maybe some that are more direct, maybe those that are indirect, some that are changing your reaction and your thoughts and behaviors, and nothing's nothing's shifting, right? It's still a torturous situation. One of the questions people ask is, when do I involve higher-ups, right? When do I escalate? And I'm a big believer that resolving conflict is best done at the source of the conflict. That said, I think there's times where, especially if you think about like a political operator or an insecure boss, you don't have a lot of leverage in that relationship. And sometimes those people will listen to someone who has more authority over them, whether that's an HR person, whether that's their boss. You know, you just have to consider the risks of doing that. Will escalating the issue make you look bad? Will the person you escalate to actually have the skills to address the issue at hand? But I do think that it's something you really need to consider. 
I also think establishing boundaries, as I said, and those might be emotional of like, I'm going to allow myself 15 minutes a day. I'm literally going to set a timer, allow myself 15 minutes a day to think about this person and the pain they're causing me. And then I'm going to put that away and focus on other things. And most of us have very positive relationships with many people at work, even if we're dealing with one, two, three difficult people. And to spend time with those people, focus your energy on those relationships is a much healthier thing to do. And then there's always the question, do I leave? And this is something I get asked a lot of like, is this enough to make me look for another job? And, you know, I think it's both an underrated option in that I think people stay way too long when they're in a a situation that's untenable for them. And I think it's an overrated option in that we often think once this person's out of my life, my life will be like puppies and rainbows. And then you get to the next place and you're like, oh, here's a whole new flavor of difficult person that I have to deal with. I know very few people who don't have at least one difficult coworker that they have to deal with. And so I just would be very careful about weighing the pros and cons of looking somewhere else and setting time limits, right? Give yourself like, here are the two things that have to change. And I'm going to give it three months and I'm going to give it my best effort. I'm going to try these tactics. I'm going to learn what works, revise my approach. And if in three months, those two things have not changed, I'm not out on the job market and I move to something else. One of the key ideas of your new book is that one size does not fit all. And that's why you came up with these archetypes. And yet there are strategies that are applicable in many, many situations. And you have a section in your book called Nine Principles for Getting Along with Anyone. We can't do all nine right now, but I'd be curious to hear if there are one or two that come to mind. Yeah. Well, one I've sort of been referring to throughout this conversation, and that is really to treat this as an experiment. If someone tries to tell you, here's a five-step process to deal with your passive-aggressive peer, do not believe them, right? Like Because every circumstance is going to be unique, the context in which you're working, the industry, your relationship with that person, your personality, their personality, all of that is going to be unique. There's not going to be a clean solution. Instead, think of this sort of as menu of tactics, again, ranging from very direct to sort of more indirect or things that require more influence skills and try them out. You know, I've even created a spreadsheet to deal with someone where I'm like, here's tactic one. I tried it for two weeks. Did it work? Under what circumstances? And I make notes and I'm like, okay, what did I learn from that? Let's try again. Tactic two, right? And then what happens when I combine tactic one and two? Partly I do that because it helps me learn along the way, but also it helps make it a little more fun, to be honest, right? Like then you sort of gamify it of like, can I get this to actually change? And so experimenting to find what works is one of the principles I really come back to over and over. The other is a mindset shift, which is that it's easy to get stuck in like, it's me versus them. You know, that story you tell yourself, I'm good, they're bad, or I'm bad, they're good, whatever the story is. And it's about you and this other person engaged in a battle. And I find it very helpful to instead think of three entities in the relationship, which is me, the other person, and then the problem we're trying to solve. And the problem might be something work-related. It might be a project that we're actually working on together, or it might be the way we interact, right? The way we email, (laughs) the tone of our emails, that might be the problem we're trying to solve. And if I imagine myself and that other person on the same side of the table 
engaging and problem solving together, I'm much more collaborative. And I find that encourages them to be much more collaborative. Then I'm asking questions of what do we do about this? How can we behave differently going forward? Here's what I want to do. What do you want to do? Right? It becomes a sort of exchange of how do we fix our relationship? You don't have to actually say that, but how do we together find ways that make this much more pleasurable or positive or even neutral for both of us? You also talk in the book about self-care. I guess a lot of people don't like that term, but just sort of taking care of yourself as a way to fortify yourself for dealing with whatever comes up. I sort of wish this was the first chapter. <laughs> it's a, it's how I end the book, but I really think that this is primary and throughout all of this because a lot of what we're talking about is really wearing, exhausting. It can cause us to burn out. And I'm a big fan of mantras. I have things I like to repeat to myself, you know, whether it's like, well, this isn't really about me, or sometimes it's as simple as like, I'm a good person, right? Or everything that has a beginning has an end. And just sort of reminding yourself that this isn't a reflection of who you are as a person in all aspects of your life. The fact that you're having this one challenging relationship does not need to color every other interaction you have. I share in that chapter a post-it that I keep on my desk, borrowed from my friend's daughter's school. You know, my body is calm. My heart is kind. I am the boss of my brain and my mind. And sometimes when I'm really struggling with someone who's sent like the third nasty email in a row, or I'm gearing up for a conversation where I'm going to have to tell the passive aggressive person that I need them to be more straightforward, like even just repeating that to myself reminds myself that this is in my control. I can't influence the way they behave, but I can control how I react. I can control how I feel about it. And my emotional reaction is valid and I'm going to handle that. And I'm also still going to do what I think is right. And I mentioned it earlier, but also just leaning into those relationships that you have that are positive. Because of our natural negativity bias, we get so fixated on all of the poor interactions. We have negative relationships, but chances are you have some really great relationships, maybe not with coworkers, but maybe outside work. And to really focus on those, invest in those. Decades and decades of research show the quality of our life is dependent on the quality of our relationships. And so remind yourself of the positive ones you have to give you sustenance to get through those more tricky negative interactions that are inevitable. All of the wisdom you've shared with us in the course of this interview, is it easier or harder to apply in a remote work environment? Oh, that that is a good question. I haven't seen a lot of good research about conflict in remote settings. I think there's some thinking that it actually is easier because we are more task-focused. We are not as relationship-focused and that we're really focused on what actually needs to get done. So a lot of the noise, for lack of a better word, around the how we do work together is quieted. That thinking, though, is based on research done pre-pandemic. And I think it's also done in environments where people always worked remotely. I think the difference is that many of us have existing relationships with people who we are now working remotely with. And so, you know, we are worried about the relationship. We are concerned. 
about how we interact, how we feel about one another, our relationship. And just personally, I will say, N of one, I feel less human in this environment. You know, and if I'm a tiny little box on a screen and I get to turn people off and on at will, like it just doesn't feel very connected. And so I go back to actually my co-host on the Women at Work podcast said this at the very beginning of the pandemic. She said, I feel like the lights in the room got turned on and we're seeing the spider webs and we're seeing the cracks and we're never going to be able to turn the lights off. And I think that's true of relationships in that if you had strong relationships with coworkers going into this extended experiment with remote work, they might have gotten stronger. But if there were fractures, if there were cracks, chances are they got much harder. And these are not great mediums of communication for being clear. (laughs) You know, they're ripe for miscommunication, misunderstanding. You and I might see each other this just sort of snippet of our lives. You're not seeing everything that's going on around me. And so we make a lot of assumptions. And I tell the story in the book of a woman who was on a meeting with a coworker of hers, and she's presumed he was rolling his eyes at her. And she was furious, fuming, and just let this fester for a long time. And when she finally said, I have to talk to him about this, He told her there was a clock above his computer that he was trying to look at very quickly because he was afraid he was going to be late to pick up his kid from school. (laughs) And it was just, I mean, she had so many negative thoughts about him. And the reason he was doing it quickly because he didn't want her to think he wasn't paying attention, right? In his effort to be courteous, he had created this whole situation and she had created this whole situation in her mind. So you know, the short answer to your question is I think for me personally, I find it much harder. I think we do because these methods of interacting are just so flat or flattened. I don't think we're getting the whole human experience and relationships are based on us being able to see ourselves and one another as humans. Is there something I should have asked but failed to ask? Nothing's coming to mind. You were very thorough. Before I let you go, can you please just remind everybody of the name of your new book, the name of your past book, any other stuff you're putting out into the world that people might want to take a look at? Sure. So the new book is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. My previous book is The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. I am the co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. I highly recommend checking that out. One of my favorite projects to work on. I also have hundreds of articles on Harvard Business Review. So if you go to hbr.org and search my name, Amy Gallo, you can find my writing there. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. This has been really fun. Yes, I agree. Thanks again to Amy Gallo. Thanks to you for listening. While I have you, if you have the time or energy, I would love it if you would go rate and or review this show. It really helps us grow. Five stars if you're up for it. I feel kind of like an Uber driver at this point. Also want to thank everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio, and Nick Thorburn of the great rock and roll band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for the final installment of our work series. We're going to talk to Professor Lindsay Cameron about whether 
mindfulness actually works at work. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.